The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. So anyway, we've been in a series uh, here, our Proof of Life, and we've looked at a number of different areas. Uh, we talked about um, Jesus, who is uh, a pretty cool person, being the very portal of life. We've talked about what it looks like for us to walk in the light, connected with God. We've had the, this conversation about the proof test, or the word test, rather. And does our, our life line up with the teachings of Jesus? I love the way Octavio phrased it. Uh, who has the last say in your life? What, uh, what manual are you reading to guide your life? Every product that's produced has a manual, has instructions. I've been married almost 13 years, and I remember when we first got married, I put on that, uh, you know, you get to basically go shopping without a bill. You know, they call it, what is it, guess the, yeah, that. And I remember going to the store, and we got to, we got to choose out these various gifts, hoping that people will buy for our wedding, you know. And one of the gifts I always wanted growing up was, was a blender. A blender was just a fascinating object to me growing up, and we didn't have one in our home, and so I decided to put that on our guest registry list for our wedding. Sure enough, I got one. I also put a flat skin, 52-inch, and a car. I didn't get that. <laughs> but we got the blender. And I remember one time we were living in San Francisco, and I wanted to make my wife, uh, had been watching uh, a show, and I wanted to make her this pie. I got all the ingredients and nice colored sort of strawberry filling to it, and I got out the blender, and I put all the ingredients in there, mixed and, and sort of mixed it and mixed it, and there it was right there in the kitchen near my carpeted area, and I twisted the blender, and out came all the contents. Hey, there's this thing called a deposit whenever you rent and stuff. Like, they're really serious about leave the place like you found it. The carpet wasn't red when we moved in, and my wife came home, and there was all the contents spilt out on the floor on our carpet. And I began to explain to her my ultimate intentions. My desire was to make this incredibly tasting, tasteful dessert. And I just kind of walked her through everything I had done up until that point. And it's just, I was telling her how I just twisted the, the blender. And she said, stop right there, don't you know? And sure enough, right there in the instruction manual, and guys, we do not read instructions. I'll affirm that stereotype. In bold writing, it said, do not twist. In fact, it said gently twist and lift at the same time. And there, I had spilt contents all over the floor. I can't help but think that's like a metaphor for our life. We fail to read the instructions, and when that happens, we have spilt lives. And so John, who is the apostle of Jesus, is one of the very few people who are left on earth at the time of this writing who has walked with Jesus. He has seen him. He has experienced his life in the deepest of ways. He has touched him. So John is in a conversation with people who are doubting the very existence of Jesus. Some people said he just appeared to be among us. He was just a silhouette. He was a shadow but left no footprints. Some people had a, a distorted view about who Jesus is and his style of leadership, his way of living and communicating. He came and literally turned the world upside down in a place where your culture, your heritage, and your gender, and your religious tradition established who was first, Jesus came and radically realigned that whole frame of thought. 
And so John is what we call an apologetic. He is defending the message of Jesus. And in just a few months, he will find himself on an island of Patmos, which he eventually will write the book of Revelations. But now he's under house arrest, and John is offering not only a defense, but he's engaging with people in a conversation about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is not some ethereal sort of conversation, but he says there are actual practical tangible expressions of our faith let's just suspend thought for a moment do we really know if there's a heaven has anyone been there like what if what if the only tangible opportunity we had to engage people around us our neighbors in this world about the conversation about God's existence and heaven and what it looks like to be touched by love and grace and what if the only only tangible expression was us our lives what if people were only dependent upon you to know that Jesus existed would they know that and John says this is my life before I met Jesus nothing mattered after I met Jesus after I connected my life with everything mattered before then I treated the meaningful things meaningless And I treated the meaningless things meaningful, but it all came into a focus the moment I connected with Jesus. He just didn't tweak my life. He just didn't enhance my life. He he wasn't just a motivational speaker. He wasn't someone who simply inspired me. John says, from the very core of my being, the very depth of my essence of who I am has to do with this person of Jesus. And so he says, listen, I desire for you to be in connection and fellowship, he says, with me and with the one who I'm speaking of. John says, there is a level of life that you know not of if you're disconnected from Jesus. So John is trying to move that conversation in the direction then on this other proof of life in which he comes to. We call this the word of the, the world test the world test in first john chapter 2 i want to read a couple of verses we'll back up here let's look at uh, let's look at verse 15 john says in first john chapter 2 do not love the world he says or anything in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him or her for everyone everything in the world the cravings of sinful man the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the father but from the world the world and its desires pass away he says but the man the person who does the will of God lives forever John says listen as we are moving about life when we're connected to the person of Jesus, there are some things that are going to happen in our life that will cause an absolute tension. Our perspectives, our views, our values will come up against what appears to be common and normal in our surroundings. Have you ever been with a group of people and individuals, they were doing something that you just knew was wrong? Could have been as something as simple as insignificant of maybe them making fun of somebody. Maybe them taking something that didn't belong to them. Did you have the courage to speak up to 
to address that situation, to maybe pull your friends back. Had a couple over at our house for breakfast last Sunday, a week ago Sunday, and we were sitting around having breakfast, and her husband is a good friend of mine, and they're part of our West Side gathering, and, and his wife is a very, very successful businesswoman, and she was telling us about her recent trip to San Francisco. Both he and his wife are Korean-Americans, and she was saying that as she was in the conference room there, her boss was talking about prospective clients for this particular company she works for. And when the boss alluded to one particular people group, he began to speak in broken English, mimicking them. He was speaking about people who were Chinese. And my friend, who is Asian-American, sat there and just listened, mortified. She looked over at another person of color as if to say, are you kidding me? One of the first questions I get, I remember my wife asking our, our friend was, did you, did you say something? Made it a little awkward, a little difficult because the person who was saying this was the CEO of the company. And so in that moment, she had a choice to play it safe. Sometimes I just think we settle for playing it safe. I have a sports background, I played football, and they call that prevent defense, when you're just trying to hold on or you're just trying to play it safe. And thankfully, my friend, she took an appropriate sort of course of action, didn't speak directly to the financial or the chief executive, but she did speak to her supervisor. And I can't help but think sometimes we just sort of punt when that sort of situation comes in front of us. And so John says, listen, when you are around people who are disconnected, who are not in the know, who are not connected to the person of Jesus, sometimes you will see things, you will experience things. People will treat other people in a way that's inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus. And so when John uses the term world here, he's not just simply talking about uh, our planet. It's rather difficult for us to remove ourselves from the world. We, this is where we, this is like Whittier, this is not Mars, we live in the world. And when we become followers of Jesus, we don't have the luxury of living in a different world. This is the world. People read this passage of scripture and they conclude that nothing is good in the physical. But we, we would find ourselves in sort of a conflict with that idea because in the scriptures in Genesis, it says that everything God created was good. In fact, the only thing that wasn't good when God created was the fact that a person was alone, that Adam was alone, and he said that wasn't good. We know that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he came in the tangible expression of flesh. In Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, and so we know that living here on this earth, that developing as a person, that interacting with other people, that taking advantage of this incredible creation is not the world for which John is speaking about. The term world literally means cosmos, and it has a number of different meanings. One, the meaning of just it being our planet, but there's another meaning to the word cosmos. It has to do with the governing principles or attitudes, the governing power of the day. It has to do with the condition of human affairs. And so John says, listen, when you connect with Jesus, don't be like the world. The governing principles that often rule our day is greed is good. That you use people as a means to achieve your end. 
the practices of selflessness and nobility and having character and playing by the rules, if you will, are too far in between. That's what the world means. And so John says, do not love the world. This sort of natural tendency for us as humans to go towards dark proportions, evil. The idea, this inclination of a governing principle or power or attitude, do not love the world. What is it that we love? John is not saying that something is wrong with God's created order. He's saying that there has been a shift, if you will. This sort of gravitational pull. Of course, we know the earth is spinning on an axis, but the pull I'm talking about is a pull in its character, a moving further and further away from the teachings of Jesus. And John says, you can't necessarily see it, maybe even feel it. I live in the South Bay. I mentioned I literally live on a fault line. You know what a fault line is? In fact, we can't even get earthquake insurance. You know, they're like, we asked Allstate, they sent a sad face. Sorry. <laughs> but they tell me earthquakes actually happen every day. The earth plates are shifting every day. We necessarily don't feel it, however. And so John says there are these subtle yet seismic shifts that are occurring in our world. There is an undercurrent that is pulling us. A couple years ago, I went to Hawaii, and uh, it was many years ago, I was, I was looking at what colleges to choose. And one of the colleges that was... I was looking at was the University of Hawaii and I played football in college and they invited me out there and I flew out there to take what they call a visitation or tour of the campus and we lived it up and I knew I wasn't going I just decided to take the trip <laughs> all right so I, I, my character was short you know back then whatever I just, uh, confession those macadamia nuts though were the bomb. bomb but I pretended like I was interested and I remember they invited me and said, hey, Goody, you swim? Now, whenever a person asks a person of African-American descent that question, it's loaded. I just want to leave that there. I'll explain the rest later. Of course I swim. And they invited a couple of us recruits to go out into the water, and there are these massive waves, you know. These waves are, these waves are like humans. The waves were coming, and they were all like talking, what's up, bro? I grew up in Compton, South Central LA. I don't know if you've ever heard of that place. Not many waves in Compton. What he said. And I remember getting into the water and you know, I was just kind of frolicking and having fun. That's a SAT word and I didn't know what it meant until a couple years later, frolicking. In the water and all of a sudden though, where the, something happened and at the time I didn't know what but I knew, know this, I went underwater and something was pulling me. And all of a sudden, what started out as a, just a play for afternoon, enjoying the company of potential teammates, turned into a, a fight for my life. We were here when I started out in the water. By the time I came up, literally I would say a minute later, I can remember my head to this day tumbling against the, the floor of the sea. 
trying to catch my breath. And by the time I finally gained my footing, I was literally maybe 50 to 75 yards away from the rest of my group. And I tried to play it cool as if, you know, I intended to do that, you know. And someone called out, hey, Goody, are you okay? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm going to take it in. I'm just going to go in. I later found out that I was, I was caught in the undercurrent, this riptide. Or subtle but dramatic. Well, not uh, too obvious, but the impact and the effect of my life the fight for my life was evident in the most real of ways. And so John says when we abide and are influenced by the governing behaviors and attitudes of the world, it's like that current that pulls us away further and further from God. And he says we should not love the world because there are some things that are seeking in it to pull us away from God, our connection to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He says when we become followers of Jesus, in essence, we discover that the way we overcome the world, though, in this sort of battle for direction in the course of our life, he says the way we overcome it is through the power of love. Because ultimately, this is a battle for our love. Proverbs 4, 23 says, then we are to guard our hearts with all diligence because out of our heart flows the very issues of life. Love is the epicenter from, ev- from which everything flows. And so John says this conversation about do not love the world then is very, very important for us. Deuteronomy 6, chapter 5 says that we are to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But again, it's this conversation about love that John is pushing and advancing forward. And he says, the object of your love will determine the very course of your life. What is it that you love? There are several tensions that are obvious, John says, in these first couple of verses, in which When our love is misplaced, the tangible expressions come out in at least three forms. Here they are. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of a sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Let's take the first one. The cravings of sinful men. I call this relationship converse, the relationship conversation. The idea of the cravings that we have. Here's how we know if we are, have a proof of life in relations to loving the world versus loving God. We treat relationships as a means to an end. We treat people as objects and as things to, for self-gratification. Self We substitute intimacy for being all about into me, you see. We reduce God's highest expression, highest expression between two people, expression of love and intimacy. We exchange that for 20-minute cheap thrills, for going down a dark road 
seeking to gratify our sexual pleasures. And he says when we treat relationships as sort of these sort of, uh, these objects of our narcissistic sort of approaches to life, it's not healthy. Every day I see my daughter and son off, and one of the things I often tell them is, I say, have a great day. In fact, no, have a fantastic day. So promise me you'll have fun. And then there's this other one I say. I say, promise me that you, treat the, that you will treat the needs of others as holy. What does it look like for us to live a life of purpose and intentionality and walking inconsistent with the way of God rather than the world, it means for us to treat our relationships as holy, as honorable, as set apart, as something sacred. That my ultimate desire, regardless of if this business deal goes south, if we come to a disagreement about our approach in terms of how to execute a particular business venture or a deal, if I, choose to, if I choose to move forward in this relationship, ultimately I want to treat your needs as holy. I want to honor you first as a human being because God sent his son to this earth to give his life as a ransom, not for trees, but for people. And if a God thinks that much of people, what does it mean for me in terms of how I treat those who are created in his image? So John says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the cravings are oftentimes these sort of narrowed, focused desires that we have that come at the expense of others, regardless of the cost. There's another thing that sort of competes for our love, these tensions that arrive, not only the cravings of sinful men, but the lust of our eyes, he says. This has to do with our possessions, the things we desire to obtain, things we hold, yet we don't realize they hold us. See, the problem is not that we have valuable things. The thing, the problem happens when we treat the valuable things as our values, the driving force to our values. And John says, all that stuff is going to pass. All that stuff is going to leave. It's not, it's not going to last. You're going to have to update it, get 2.0 to it. Someone's going to steal it like they did my stuff two weeks ago. Self-disclosure time. So 7.30 in the morning, I come downstairs. Right in front of my garage is my, my car parked there, my, right there. Someone went into my car and stole all my golf equipment, my golf clubs, my Bluetooth. Hey, hello, hello. My Ray-Ban shades, all oh, crying game, curling up in the shower, crying. <laughs> they stole my daughter's clubs, just bought them a month ago, and my son's clubs. They stole Irwin's books. <laughs> and I remember calling the police. 
I was like, I was so disturbed. I didn't even know, who do you call when your stuff, like I called 911. <laughs> and it happened like four in the morning, you know, Dave? It happened like four, I was like, it was like 7.40. She's like, sir, are they in your house now? Are they at your, I said, well, no, it was in my car. Did it shatter the window? Are you being held? I said, no, I think they've gone. <laughs> the light is out, the sun is out. The police came within 20 minutes and took a report and later found out they went on a shopping spree to Carl's Jr. In fact, they got him on videotape five in the morning going into Carl's Jr. and buying like 20 bucks worth of stuff. They went to Target, $190 worth of stuff. They went online at Apple to try to buy some stuff. So I've been on the phone back and forth with the all state people and this thing called depreciation. It's this thing called depreciation. You know, in other words, I paid for one club. Now, don't tell my wife. $600 for one club. They call it a driver. It drives you to bankruptcy. For one club, I paid that amount of money, and that was one of the clubs that was stolen. But when I talked to the people in Allstate, they were not willing to give me the full, the full amount for which I had paid. They have this thing called depreciation. The moment you purchase something, the moment you take the wrapper out, the moment you drive the car off the lot, the moment you use it, the value depreciates. And John says when we place our trust and our faith in possessions, it's fleeting, fast and quickly. The value depreciates. The psalmist says that some trust in silvers, others trust in gold, but we put our trust, our hope, not in possessions, but in the name of the Lord. Who is it that you put your trust in? What is it that you delight in? The psalmist says in Psalms 37, 4, that we are to delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will give us the desires of our heart. It's not to say that God gives us a, a, whatever we have on our wish list, but it is to say when we have our love and our desire pointed towards God, it shapes and alters and creates in us a DNA, a perspective of heart, a desire ultimately that is a healthy one. And it gives us proper perspective. And so even with my materials, having depreciated value is all good. My thought was, I hope they read the books. I hope their golf game improves. John says, listen, our relationships, when, they, when we reduce them to cravings of our sinful nature, our possessions, when they actually possess us, and then he, this is final one, he says, and then the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. This has to do with our worldview. Has to do with arrogance and issues of pride. You know, when we're prideful and arrogant, we think more of ourselves than we should. And we don't think enough of others as much as we should. We reduce our success on a resume and the degrees on our wall to hard work. John says, no, we have to remember that everything good comes from God, that he is the very essence of life. 
In Acts 17, 28, it says, it is for in him we live, move, and have our very being. Last time I checked, us breathing the very breath in our lungs is a gift from God. We're not the masters of our faith, the captains of our ship. Our relationships, our possessions, our worldview. You know, this is really a conversation not only about the things that we love, but it's also about a battle for our will. I fly a lot on planes, and they talk about often, you ever, you ever hear them talk about the black box? Parenthetically, it's not black, it's like orange. I met several people here today who are either doctors or pursuing their doctorates in clinical psychology, and I actually looked this up. I read about this. You know they have a theory called the black box theory. Yeah. It's about the human mind, the very will. The things, when they talk about on the plane, they said the black box is responsible. It, it takes into account every activity, every movement involved in that plane. The speed, the altitude, the velocity, the wings, everything it accounts for. And so when something happens to a plane, one of the first things they're looking for is the black box. It is very telling. It is very revealing. They seek to discover what went wrong. And psychologists tell us that the black box theory then has to do with the human mind or the will. Everything it inputs and then the outputs. What happens? What John is telling us that we simply don't move through life by chance or by circumstances coming across the things that are happening to us. John says they are conscious choices. They're a matter of our will, what we choose. And our will then is the black box, the input, the output. And all we have to do is sort of look at the black box, the will of our life, and we can see we can see the potential outcome. And if we find ourselves crashing, what is the things we so desire? What is competing for your will? John says we shouldn't love the world. He says the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And I don't think John is simply talking about the life hereafter. You see, Jesus, I know, is concerned about life after death. But somewhere in these scriptures I read that he has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly, and thus the Jesus I speak of is concerned about life after birth. And so then this brings us to this point then of our love and sort of this conversation about our will having to do with the course of our life, not loving the world. In Romans chapter 12, there are a couple verses I want to bring. How, Goody, how do I then, how do I move then to a place where I don't love the world, where I'm not caught up in possessions, not caught up in unhealthy relationships or having a world? How do I move from that? The Apostle Paul says these words in Romans chapter 12. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, spiritual act of worship. 
And then he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his good and pleasing and perfect will. The Apostle Paul says this idea of moving to love God more than we love the governing principles and attitudes of the world is a daily commitment. It's an intentional act, a presentation of everything in our being daily given it to God. There's one other passage of scripture I want to read. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this battle for our love, this battle for our will, Paul raises, raises it to the level of almost like a military conflict here. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, these words, verse 3, he says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. He says, in fact, that the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Some of these possessions, they, they're basically strongholds on our life. We're consumed by them. And Paul says, when we seek to alleviate, when we seek to address those things, we have to know how to go about fighting them. He says, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Paul says that when it comes to my will, when it comes for the thing that competes against my love, Paul says, I draw a line in the sand, and I draw on the weapons of warfare that are of divine influence. Here they are, weapons of prayer, reflection, of meditation, of silence, weapons where I choose to live a life of intentionality, moving towards Jesus, examining his scriptures, his manual for my life. I seek to surround myself with people who are trying to move me forward in life. Here's the measurement for all your relationships. The people that have the greatest influence over your life, they should be people who propel you closer to God, not further away. The people we seek to connect to, they ought to be someone we're investing in that we are seeking to move forward in their relationship with God and the people we're connected to, they should be someone who is pulling us forward. In other words, listen, a couple years ago I got on a plane and I remember looking in the cockpit at the pilot and, and I, I guess I must have appeared to be nervous. I had heard about the turbulence on this particular route we were going to in Chicago and the pilot came out and looked at me and i never forget it. He said these words. He says, don't worry, I've been where we're going. This was his second leg back to LAX. And so every, every bit of turbulence, every aspect of this plane, all the speed and the nuances, he knew it because he had already been. We need people in our lives who are at a place where we're seeking to go. Look, if I want to learn how to shoot free throws, I ain't calling Shaq. Give me Steve Nash, give me Derek Fisher, and we all need the Steve Nashes in our spiritual repertoire to draw from. And John says, when we seek to love God, 
more than anything else when there's not a competition for our love, when our love is not divided, when our will is not divided, everything aligns properly. And John says, then we can enjoy everything that life has to offer, including TiVo. Okay, so that's not in there, but you get the point. Being a follower of Jesus then is to constantly live our lives in the opposite direction to the natural flow of this world. You ever been to a country where they drive on the wrong side of the street? A couple years ago, I, I was in England studying at Oxford. I was there for two weeks. You know, <laughs> they gave us a list of things to be aware of. One, you pay for ketchup. Could believe that. Could believe that. We're going to go to the, the palace. They talked to us about curtsy and appropriate sort of, don't be like trying to high five the queen and stuff. <laughs> I was like, why y'all have that for me? What? <laughs> I forgot what I was talking about. Squirrel! <laughs> oh, yeah, street. And the other thing he talked about was, hey, they drive on the wrong side of the street here. And I'm not kidding you. We were on a bus, and I remember us getting out. We wanted to go take a look at the, the clock, what they called it, Big Joe, Big, Big Bo, Big Ben. <laughs> I just did that for humor. I know. And I remember getting off the bus, and sure enough, I looked in the opposite direction of what I should have been looking. I forget which way that was now. But this guy on a motorcycle almost, like, hit me, and he pointed a finger. I'm pretty sure he wasn't cheering, like, you're number one. You're number one. It was a couple fingers over, and he yelled something out. And because this is a sacred space, I won't repeat it but it had to do with the fact that I was moving in a direction that was inconsistent with the flow of traffic. I think we're in danger when we do that in the natural. I do think there's danger to that. We should obey the signs. But I wonder what it would look like for a people in Whittier to decide to live their lives against the grain, against the flow of traffic as it relates to the spiritual movement of this world. What would it look like for God to give you a ticket? Because you chose to go in a different direction than the other traffic, the other world. John says, when we love God, place him first. It looks as if everything else is abnormal. And that's how we're to live our lives. God, thank you for this day, a chance we have to come together as a community. God, to consider a message you gave to one of your own chosen disciples. God, written in first century 95 AD, God, but it's relevant in 2010, we are to love you and not the world, the governing behavior and attitudes, the ethos of this world that is often in conflict with you, whether it's our relationships, our possessions, or our worldview, God, thinking too highly of ourselves, not honoring enough of others. We treat others as means to achieve our ends. God, when we value and place our value 
in the stuff we have. God, I pray that you would move us to a place, God, where our will and even our heart would advance towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.